Oh, th- thanks, Brian. Appreciate that. Uh, again, continue to pray for John and Betty. Uh, mentioned a little bit before. Um, some really uh, difficult health problems for Betty, and um, she's been fighting this a little bit for a while. And um, so I made the uh, statement to John. I said, if any time you feel like at the last minute <laughs> that uh, you can't make make it to a particular uh, preaching engagement, as long as I'm free, um, I'd be delighted to do that. So he took me up on it. <laughs> I'm glad he did. So at 3.30 yesterday, he gave me a call, and, and I said, I just can't, uh, just can't make it Sunday. So he gave me twice, I think two Sundays in a row. So uh, if you're planning your uh, long-awaited trip to Yukon, Extended weekend, next weekend you could do that, but we're going to try to stay on schedule. I'm going to try to preach what John was intended to preach this morning, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. Turn in the Word, if you would, to Matthew 5, and um, we'll dig into this passage. What I'm going to do this morning is I want to read uh, verses 1 right through verse 16 to give us the context, and we'll be spending on verses 13 to 16, what it means for us to be salt and light in the world. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. This version is not too different from others, but uh, just so you're aware of that. I'm, many of you have maybe different versions, but uh, this is the word of God. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, the, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. That is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me just pause for a moment here. Be tie in verses 13 to 16, at least as I see it. As Jesus has just talked about in the midst of persecution, and pushback, we're going to be reviled. It could be in physical persecution. They're going to slander us. So I believe these next verses, Jesus is uh, sort of anticipating that the disciples and we, as we read this, would might thinking, you know, you know, I don't know if I can do this. Am I even capable of doing this? And so he uses two metaphors, salt and light, to to reinforce his disciples and to us as followers, yes, this is our calling, this is what we're to do. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. 
and it gives life for all those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is God's word. The church suffers from an identity crisis. I thought about the church, whether it's Cornerstone or Crossroads or Journey Christian Church. We suffer from an identity crisis. What I mean by that is we forget who we really are. If you look into the New Testament, we, we see our identity surface. We're more than just a group of people meeting here for Sunday mornings to be encouraged and, and to sing and praise and to listen to the word of God and have communion together. That is very important, but we're more than that. We're more than just a club. We're just a bunch of like-minded people getting together. The Bible says we are the body of Christ. That's identity. The Bible says we are the family of God. The New Testament says we are the temple of God. The Bible says we are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're, we're a holy nation. We're a people of God's own possession. Identity. And in this passage, says Jesus says to the church, to his followers, we are salt and light. In other words, he's going to answer the question, what kind of people and influence are we to be in the world as the church, as kingdom people representing the king, Jesus, how then should we live? President Woodrow Wilson told a story about his encounter with the great evangelist D.L. Moody. And he wrote, I was in a common place. I was sitting in a barber chair when I became aware that a personality had entered the room. A man came, had come in quietly and upon the same errand as myself to have his hair cut and sat in the chair next to me. Every word the man uttered, though it was not in the least didactic, that is teaching, showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him. And before I got through with what was being done for me, I was aware that I attended evangelistic service <laughs> because D.L. Moody was in the chair. He writes, I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that his visit had upon the barbershop. They talked in undertones. They didn't even know his name, but they knew that something had elevated their thoughts and I felt that I had left the place, I had left the place of worship. Salt and light. Jesus starts with his disciples, again, reinforcing this, two very familiar metaphors. In verse 13, he declares, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. So what does it mean that we are the salt of the earth? Well, salt is something we use every day, isn't it? Of course, uh, salt gets a little bad rap at times, right? In fact, uh, if you are, have elevated high blood pressure, your doctor would probably say to you, hey, lay off the salt or use a salt substitute. Avoid certain foods that elevate your blood pressure, like uh, potato chips that are salted or pizza. 
And in the winter, we use road salt, right? We just experienced that, and thank God for road salt. It de-ices our roads and our sidewalks. It doesn't do a very good job in our undercoating of our car, but we thank God for that. But obviously, they didn't need salt to de-ice in the Palestine. So what do they use it for? When Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, what do they think? Well, we know that this is probably an unknown fact to many of us, but they use salt as wages for the Roman soldiers. <laughs> Think about that. Because salt was such a valuable commodity during that day that uh, they would uh, pay their soldiers with salt. And you think about uh, going to work, and getting your paycheck, and getting 60 bags of road salt as your payment. You might object to that, but for them, it was a scarce commodity. It was very valuable. We know that salt was used for seasoning, just like we use it today. And uh, how many of us have sat down at a meal and say, hey, this needs a little more salt? Or, hey, pass the salt shaker, please. We know that salt was used as well for fertilizer for crops in that day. Don't quite fully understand it, but it was spread on the ground, and apparently it helped to get water to the roots of the plants that they had planted. But we also know that salt was a preservative, something we don't think much about today. In fact, we are told that salt was the earliest preservative and, va and very valued in the ancient world. So why? Well, because there were no refrigerators, right? No ice boxes. So if you had fish or meat, you would just saturate it, cover it with salt, and get it down into the meat itself to preserve it so you could eat it maybe a day or two later. In fact, salt was so important as a preservative that they literally, nations had war over it because they needed that. It was valuable just to live. We don't think about that very much today. And the bottom line was this, that salt in Jesus' day could literally make the difference between life and death. In a time when fresh food was very available, unavailable. So which of the above is Jesus talking about? What does it look like to be salt in the world? Well, we could take a number of these analogies, but I would say probably the main thing that I see here, and I think what the main thing of the culture of that day was that salt was primarily a preservative. That's how they used it almost every day. What does that mean? Well, let's admit it. We, we live, do we not? We live in a decaying and rotten world, right? I mean, we don't have to spend much time just listening to what's happening within our own culture and what's taking place. We have um, murder increasing. We have strife. We have political corruption. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. We've got the killing of babies in the womb. In fact, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday where we acknowledge the sanctity of life. We have sexual perversion. We have marriages falling apart. And the very institute of marriage is called into question. I mean, who among us who have lived in any sort of time cannot say we are getting more corrupt, more dark in our culture? So it is this decaying and rotting world that's being destroyed from within the culture around us. We are called to be salt to be preservative, to, to, to help stem the, the corruption by our words and our actions 
and by the gospel. We're to be different. We're to be distinctive, just like salt in food is distinct from the food itself, right? Or we're to be citizens of heaven, and we, we live for the king, and it's so clear that, that we live for the king that our, even our presence can stem the tide for the gospel and for our life of this corruption in the world. In fact, I think what Jesus is saying here, we can't divorce what he's saying here from what he said previously. There'll be attitudes of what the kingdom looks like. Jesus is saying, you live that out in the world and you will be salt in the earth. Or if we put it another way, I think what he's saying here, in fact, these two metaphors are very closely related. He's, he's saying basically be an influence, have an impact in our decadent culture, be difference makers. And isn't that what we're to be as a church? Here we are in our holy huddle, and I don't use that term in a derogatory sense, but you know, we're here in a holy huddle, and same with our church journey, we're meeting. There's a world out there dying and corrupt, rotten, things are falling apart. And, we, and Christ calls us, listen, you be sought, you be distinctive, you live your life. It makes a difference. G. Campbell Morgan, uh, a Bible teacher many, many moons ago, said this, wrote this. Jesus, looking out over the multitudes of his day, saw the corruption and disintegration of life at every point. He saw its spoilation. And because of his love of the multitudes, he knew they needed most, what they needed most was salt in order that the corruption would be arrested. He saw them wrapped in gloom, sitting in darkness, groping amidst fogs and, and mist, and he knew they needed, above everything else, salt and light. You know, it's easy for us, it's easy for me, perhaps, maybe for you as well, to, we, we are great at being critics and judgmental of what's happening in our culture, and we should, in that sense, we should declare the truth, but what are we doing about it? By the grace of God, none of us would be in this room this morning. I'll be by the grace of God, right? So we're called to be salt. I, and it's wonderful to see some organizations, Christian organizations, for instance, churches as well, that, that uh, I think of an organization started by believers that is dedicated to stem the tide of sex trafficking. Great ministry. To stem somehow the corruption and also to present the gospel. I, I think of uh, Compass Care and other organizations here in this community that are ministries trying to stop the tide of the killing of babies in the womb. Salt. I have a business friend at our church who a number of years ago uh, was kind of high up in a in particular company and uh, they uh, decided to change their policy about uh, homosexuality and uh, same-sex marriage. This was a number of years ago before it's really exploded. And I remember this man saying to me, he said, you know, what'd you tell him? I said, I'm not, I'm not gonna do it, I'm gonna leave the company. And I told him, that's not the way to go. Both ways, personal conviction of how he saw, but also the word of God, saw. 
Whether we're at school, at work, or neighborhood, we are to be salt to the world. Salt preserves, but sometimes salt stings, doesn't it? I uh, got a couple of wounds here from my wife's cat. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, sanctifying moment. But, you know, if I put salt in this wound, whoa! It stings. It's an antiseptic, right? But sometimes, even what we say is we live a salt in the world. We, we are, we're confronting, right? In love. And it doesn't make, necessarily make us loved and, and respected by people, but we represent Jesus Christ. I think of the passage, maybe you've thought of it already, of Colossians 4, 5, and 6, where Paul talks about what it means to be a witness. He says, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, he writes, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, what? Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And I think what he's saying there is in a little different angle than what Jesus, I think, is talking about. But seasoned with salt means you know, create a thirst, create a flavor for Christ. You know, talk about Jesus, make him attractive, share what Jesus has done in your life, and, and, and open the door for the gospel. Speak graciously, but season it with salt and the reality of Christ and the truth in the midst of a dark and uh, corrupt world. But you know in the text, verse 13, Jesus gives a warning, right? But if the salt should lose, lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, you may probably wear this. has caused quite a bit of consternation amongst people because they say, hey, salt doesn't deteriorate. For instance, uh, how, long, how long have you had your salt in your salt shaker? You know, maybe it's six months, a year. You know, when it comes out, at least ours comes out, it's still salty. They say, well, what? what's Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about back in that day when there was impure salt and was mixed with other elements, and it would deteriorate over time. And Jesus is saying, you know, if, if we're not salt to the world, then we're going to run over. Because we need, we're distinct people. We're a holy nation. We're to be salt to, to this world. I... Uh, the great Baptist preacher back, I think, in the 1800s, George Truett, put it this way. You either be corrupted by the world or you are salting it. How do we lose our saltiness? We allow the world to press us into its mold. And we have no distinctive. We have no holiness. We have no challenge. And we, we, we're trampled underfoot. And we've lost what Christ has called us to do. We speak the truth in love, yes. John Stott said, when a society goes bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But we should rather, not rather reproach ourselves. One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask, where is the salt? In other words, where's the church? Where are we? On that mission that God's called us to be salt to the world. We need to be salt to this world because the world is rotting and decaying and all the way to destruction. 
Some of you might not, might probably don't remember this book. It came out in 1975, and I think the new edition came out in 1999, so a lot of you weren't even born then. Well, not all of you, but. Rebecca Manley Pippet, Pipper, wrote a book, Out of the Shots, Shots, Salt Shaker into the World. It's a great title. It's a great book on evangelism. What she's simply saying is, you know, don't leave the element that Christ has called us to, to be preservative and to declare righteousness within a corrupt world, don't leave it in the salt, salt shaker, okay? Don't leave it there. Get it out. I, uh, a number of years ago in our church, I was a concerned about our, our evangelism. You know, it was always a struggle, a struggle in my own life. And so I uh, stole something from another church. I didn't copyright it, but put a little banner up on the door going out, and it said this, you are now entering your mission field. And people commented on that because they, they would they'd notice it. It would be up there and says, yeah, that's right. You know, we're equipped here, you know, so to go out in the world to be salt and light. The second declaration, verses 14, right? Second metaphor, you are the light of the world. Now, we know from Scripture that Israel understood that they were to be a light to the world. Isaiah 42.6, God said, I am the Lord, I have called you, that is Israel, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a cov- as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. A light to the nations. In fact, Paul, when he was reprimanding the, uh, the Jews in, in Romans 2, saying, you know, we're righteous, we're God's people. He said, and if you, sh- if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness. Well, they declared that, but they really weren't. We know that Jesus is the light of the world, right? It's prophesied in, in Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you... To, this is to the Messiah, a light to the nations that saw my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6. Jesus declared, I am the what? Light of the world. The light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 12. And then Paul wrote to the Ephesian church these words. Ephesians 5, 7 to 9. Therefore, do not become partners with them, that is the unbeliever. For one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Walk as children of light. Brothers and sisters, we're the salt of the earth. We're the only salt. And brothers and sisters, we're the light to the world. What a privilege, right? What a responsibility. There, there is no other light in the darkness. We live in a dark world, the, the prince of darkness, a world that, and, and fellow people around us, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers that are blinded to the light and the glory of Jesus Christ. And we're the light. We're the light. 
And he gives two illustrations of what it means to be light in the world. He talks about a city on a hill cannot be hidden. That may seem a little strange to us because uh, we live in a, with a lot of street lights and a lot of lights. I, occasionally I've driven back late at night coming into Rochester on 390 and you go to that hill and, and you know you're getting close. You don't, see the, you don't see the skyscrapers, but you see the light reflected off the uh, clouds. Well, you can imagine in that day in Palestine, there were no street lights. There, were no electric, there wasn't any electric lights, no street lights, anything, lamps in the house as far as we know, these kind of lamps. And so if you were traveling back to a particular town or city, you were looking for that light. And particularly if the city was a little bit raised on the hill, he said, that's my town. And it was brilliant in the context of all the darkness because there were no no other lights. Jesus said, when we're the light to the world, we're like a city on a hill, and people can't help but take notice of the church being the light. Or it says, no one lights a lamp, verse 15, and puts it on a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and gives light for all who are in the house. The lamps he's talking about were relatively small. They were obviously flamed. They were lit by oil. And Jesus is saying something simple. You know, you don't take a lamp and put it under a table. For instance, if you came to my house tonight, you're all welcome, but <laughs> if you came to my house tonight and I opened the door and you walked in, it's kind of dark in here. Where's your lamps? Oh, I've got it covered with a towel. <laughs> oh, I got another one behind a corner under a table. So well, why are you doing that? Oh, it's doing it. Well, that's not the purpose of a lamp, right? You get in my house, there's going to be a lamp on top of the table. It's going to be bright and shiny and illuminate. And Jesus is saying, listen, this is what the church is to be. We're not to be under a basket. We're not to be under a table. We're not to be covered up. We're to be light. Brilliant light in the darkness. We're to be like a city on a hill that stands out in a dark night. We are to be like a lamp in the middle of the room that sheds light. Verse 16 explains how that happens. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think the parallel passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, that is the unbelievers, so that in the thing in which they slandered you as evildoers, they may be cause of your good deeds. As they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There must be lights in doing good works to stand out like a city on a hill or a lamp in the middle of the table. If you think about this this morning, Jesus is the brilliant light, is he not? He's the sun, if you will, S-U-N. And we're the moon of many moons, we're reflecting his light and his glory through our actions and our words and the reality of Christ to others. You wake up in the morning and say, what should I do with my life? Here it is. You know, we tend to get wrapped up in all this and my life's kind of boring. Every day, we, wherever we are, wherever we walk, we're lights and salt to a lost and dying world. 
I think about Jesus' brilliant light that he shed, that he shone on people, and certainly there's many aspects of that. But the passage I come back to is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. No wonder his light shone brightly. If you want to say, what does it mean for me to be, and for us, to be lights of the world? Hey, don't come to be served, but to serve and to give our lives to others so they might know Christ. And and sometimes just the little things. It doesn't have to be the big things. I have a next-door neighbor who doesn't know the Lord. He's a widower. Uh, He's really tragic. His wife died of cancer. He really feels lost. He has family around. But, you know, sometimes... We'll get an engaging conversation, but one thing I try to do, I try to do the little things for him that he, that he wouldn't expect. That's all by the grace of God, by the way. I mean, it's not, it's not my own flesh doing that, but so I'll pick up a garbage can that falls down, or I'll pick up paper that, because you can't really walk very much. I'll do different things, but try to open the door for the gospel as well. I want to be a light. And... and what a privilege we have. It doesn't have to be the big things. It to be the little things, but we're looking for that opportunity to shine the light of Christ. And we must be lights by doing good works. Most of we stand out like a city on a hill on a dark night. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Christian who was martyred that Hitler, from Hitler, wrote this. Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. And Jesus is the sun, the brilliant light, blazing the world. And his life is now ours, and we are now reflect that. And we say, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Just take that passage and pray it and watch God work. But there's an end here, isn't it? That they may see your good works and what? And give glory to your Father who's in heaven. It's not about us. It's not about us. It's about the glory of the Father. Are we shining lights? Or maybe we could have dumbed that down a little bit and our lights aren't shining that much, but, you know, it's, that's okay. No, we're to be lights that are so brilliant with the life of Christ flowing through us that people are just, they see it. My grandson, Tristan, um, Bought a house in the city. I think I mentioned this before, but uh, he bought his house in the city, bought an as-is, although they did a lot of work on it, but there were some as-is that needed to be done. And uh, when I got to saw his house, uh, in his kitchen, one light was working on the ceiling, but was as dim as could be, and the light over the sink was gone. <laughs> so now he, 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 he lives with it for a while, and I kept saying, Tristan, I mean, I could hardly see he got used to it. And then I got a hold of my son-in-law, who's an electrical engineer, but also an electrician and a plumber and everything else. Hey, Rob, you know, he'll pay for the, the material, get over there and get some lights in there. And so Rob went over and uh, 
put some new lights in, and I came back a week later just to do some work at his house. And what brilliant! But it was an illustration to me that, you know, when I was looking at it, I said, it's not bright enough. He's living in it, and he say, I'm bright, it's bright enough. Isn't it true for us as a church sometimes? We think we're bright, but we're really lights, but we're really not. We sort of dumb it down, right? And, 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 and but here, he said, we're sitting, sitting in the hill, seen. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite authors, he passed away, I think, about a year ago, went home to be with the Lord, writes this. Salt speaks of inward character that influences a decaying world. Like speaks of the outward testimony of good works that points to God. He says, our task as a church is to keep our lives pure so that we might be salt, so we might salt this earth and hold back corruption so that the gospel may get out. Our good works accompany, must accompany our dedicated lives as we let our lights shine. You see, the difference between good works and doing the works to shine the light is that we point to the glory of God. It's Him. It's for His glory. Uh, we live, of course, in Lake Ontario. I live right up next to Lake Ontario. Always love that lake effect snow that we get more than even down in this area, but you know, the Soda's Point and some other places, you see lighthouses, right? And they're not in operation anymore. It's simply because of the technology and not much boating and major ships on Lake Ontario. But most lighthouses, there's some that operate, but probably most lighthouses aren't really uh, used for the reason they're originally built. Because of the technology and everything else. But what's a lighthouse designed to do? It's designed often to show, hey, warning, warning, don't get close. You might be a shipwreck. You might be gone. I wonder if sometimes we as a church become like those lighthouses that we got the edifice there, but we're not serving the purpose. And I talk to myself as well as uh, in our church, as well as your church, that we've forgotten who we really are. There are people without hope and without God, lost and facing eternal destruction, and we are the light. We're the lighthouse. And all of us have different circle of influences. You know, you don't know my neighbor, you never probably will, because that's where I live. And I don't live where you live, and I'm not traffic where you traffic. But we're called to be lights and salt. I, I thought of this song. I think you've sung it here, maybe, could be correct, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Graham Kendrick. Shine, Jesus, shine. Fill this land with the Father's glory. Blaze, spirit, blaze. Set our hearts on fire. Flow, river, flow. Flood the nations with grace and mercy. Send forth your word, Lord, and let there be light. Set your heart this morning. It's my heart. It should be if we're followers of Christ. And three responses to this, these passages from our Lord. Number one, we all rejoice. We can rejoice in the fact that the Lord has left us to be salt and light. I wonder what my purpose in life is. Why did he leave the church here? Why does he take us up? Why? Because we have a mission to be salt and light in the world. We repent, I think, 
perhaps some of us do, and I know for me, that we have not lived out this missional identity. We sort of set it to the side, we come to that lighthouse that sits there with an edifice, but having no purpose. And then request, Lord, make me this week to be soft and light to those around me so that one day they may glorify you. That's, that's what life is about. And if you're like me, it's so easy to lose the identity of who I am in Christ and what the church is about. But we are the salt and we are the light. What a privilege, right? And what a responsibility. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we said trying to grasp these metaphors and what they mean, but, but clearly uh, we rejoice in the fact that you have indeed called upon your church, this church and many churches around this nation and the world to be salt and light. And you've entrusted to us the gospel. You trusted us to, to shine your light that gives life to the world. And we repent that uh, we have not always been that way. We get so sidetracked. We forget what our purpose is in life. And I just pray for myself and for this church that, that, um, that we be reminded again and again that what a privilege we have to be sought in light to a dark and dying world. And Lord, we request that you would make us as a church to be sought in the light to those around us so that they may ultimately glorify you. It's all about your name. It's all about your glory. So make it happen, Lord, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless.